Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Tonight on The Readout. No person having received the majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, a speaker has not been elected. An epic fail and stunning humiliation for Kevin McCarthy, who took the knee for Donald Trump, then gave away the store to the cuckoo fringe of his party, but is still not Speaker of the House. And we begin tonight with the new Congress, the 118th. Today was supposed to be swearing-in day, typically a big day for the country, filled with pomp and pageantry and often a feeling of hope and excitement as a new Congress kicks off and implements its vision. For some, it serves as bring your kids to Congress Day so that children get to see their parents or their grandparents take the oath and perhaps make history themselves. History was certainly made on this opening day in the House of Representatives when House Democrats nominated their caucus chair, Hakeem Jeffries of New York, to succeed Nancy Pelosi as speaker. I rise today at the direction of the House Democratic Caucus to place into nomination for election to the position of Speaker of the House of Representatives the pride of Brooklyn, Hakeem Jeffries of New York. The New York congressman secured 212 votes for speaker. It was the first time since 2007 that a Democratic leader won support from every single member of their caucus. Jeffries is also now officially the first black lawmaker to lead a party in Congress, succeeding the first woman, Pelosi. It was a picture of unity within the Democratic Party and of progress, a changing of the guard in House Democratic leadership, even more diverse, younger, reflecting the promise of America. But the start of a new congressional year can also be messy, very messy. And by messy, we're talking a full-on revolt against Kevin McCarthy and his fight for the speakership. To win the gavel, McCarthy needs a majority of the members elect who are present and voting. That would be 218 votes if everyone is present. And, well, things aren't exactly going McCarthy's way. Earlier today, Kevin failed to win a majority on the first ballot amid opposition from his party's far-right fringe. The same scenario repeated during the second vote, with the anti-McCarthy faction consolidating for insurrection-friendly Tea Partier Jim Jordan of Ohio, who himself is a supporter of McCarthy. Kevin then lost his third vote for speaker, even losing support when Florida Republican Byron Donalds, who earlier got a nomination vote himself, announced his support for Jordan after having voted twice for McCarthy. It's the first time in 100 years that a speaker was not elected on the first ballot. And what happens next is literally anyone's guess. The House has adjourned until noon tomorrow. So just grab that popcorn, America. This just might take a while. Joining me now is MSNBC Capitol Hill correspondent Ali Vitale. Uh, All I want to know, Ali, well, two things I want to know. On the Democratic side, how loudly were they laughing? And at any point did they start to break out ticker tape and have a parade? And And on the other side, what are the conversations taking place now that they've adjourned between McCarthy and the 20 who oppose him? 
So look, I didn't see ticker tape from Democrats, but I did see popcorn. You're not far off with that. And then on the other side of it, Republicans are now eating pizza. Like literally on my way to do this live shot with you, there were boxes and boxes of pizza being wheeled in because they have a long night ahead of them. McCarthy is still huddling with these conservative lawmakers, trying to find a way to make inroads. But here's the problem. They didn't just meet the other day. They have been talking about this for weeks. McCarthy has been making concessions, trying to find ways to get these Freedom Caucus members on board. And it's clear that they have an all or nothing approach here. That much was clear this morning when they were talking with reporters. And it has certainly sustained itself throughout the day. The McCarthy strategy was also to keep people on the floor and just eventually wear them out, be able to make inroads by the sheer force of putting people on the floor. Those conservative lawmakers, though, didn't blink. The reality is true that they are both nominating the guy, Jim Jordan, who is nominating Kevin McCarthy. The guy does not want to be speaker. But at the same time, conservatives are still trying to find any way to keep McCarthy from being in this position. And so far, they're being able to do so. McCarthy is not speaker, and there's no clear way for him to get there. And so there's a lot of shrugging here on Capitol Hill right now, because frankly, this just needs to play out. But no one can say the way it's going to end, because it's not clear who's willing to blink first. (laughs) Ah, MSNBC Capitol Hill correspondent Ali Vitale, thank you. Tell them they better stay away from the pizza boxes. The QAnon people get real suspicious when they see pizza. They think something funny is going on. So uh, thank you, Allie. Appreciate you. Joining me now is Sir Michael Singleton, former Republican political consultant and host of Screen Share on Peacock. Kurt Bardella, Democratic strategist, and Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large at The Bulwark and an MSNBC contributor. I'm going to start at the table here because, Kurt, you know, you were you, you were staff at one time to Republicans. And, and, and I love the fact that both of you are here because you were both young Republicans and an idealistic and that were idealistic, I'm sure, coming into the party. Mm-hmm. And then discovered what the party was and backed, started to back away. <laughs> you wrote a piece uh, in the L.A. Times, Kurt, about when things started to get weird. And it was 2014 in the Obama era. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. When you look at what's unfolded today, Joy, to me, all of this started eight years ago when Dave Bratt defeated the sitting House Majority Leader Eric Cantor in his primary. It was the first time, really, that we saw from that Tea Party wing of the party that had emerged them successfully take out what they called the establishment, which they really thought of as the enemy. It's it's funny because that wing of the party, the Democrats were the opposition, but their own leadership, their own party structure, they saw them as the enemy, and they successfully took out Eric Cantor. And Cantor was part of this trifecta that was anointed as the young guns. It was Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor, and you guessed it. Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy. They were going to be the heir parents that were going to take over. Canner goes down. Boehner then, a year later, resigns from Congress, not just vacating the speaker. He left. He took his ball and went home. McCarthy was supposed to be the leader at that point. The night before the vote's going to happen, the Freedom Caucus puts out 30 to 40 members saying they're not going to vote for McCarthy. 24 hours later, McCarthy bows out of the race. Paul Ryan ascends. Guess what happened shortly after that? Paul Ryan leaves Congress. He didn't want to deal with it anymore because it got too crazy. Here we are now, all those years later, and it's the same play playing out. Yeah. A vocal minority of extreme, and in this case, anti-democratic domestic terrorist sympathizers, have hijacked the entire caucus. There are 222 Republicans in Congress. How is it possible that these people have allowed 20 of them, led by Matt Gates, who you know sent Venmos to a child uh, uh, trafficker of some kind, Like, how do they allow this to happen, yeah. that they get held hostage? And it's because for every time that this has happened, 
they capitulate. That's been the Republican response. The reason why Donald Trump was able to hijack the Republican Party was because they surrendered it to him. Trump didn't take it by force. He just won it through attrition. They just gave up. Now they're seeing what happens when you let that happen. There's a reason why, Joy. The United States motto is we don't we don't negotiate with terrorists. Mm-hmm. This is the reason why. Well, I mean, and look, Sir Michael, the, the, the thing is, and I've always said that the media made a huge mistake underestimating what the Tea Party was. Mm-hmm. This was an extreme anti-Obama surge of anxiety yeah. about people who look like this table um, growing in numbers in the country. And they freaked out. But they then organized and took over the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Much of the House caucus, the Freedom Caucus, that's the Tea Party. Yeah, tea Party. Yeah. Jim Jordan, Tea Party, or even you know DeSantis in Florida, Tea Party. The Tea Party has now become the baseline. Oh, yeah. Then have, on top of that, you have the MAGA people. Mm-hmm. Then on top of that, you have people like Gosar, whose own family says are extreme racist. And then the moderates, what passes for them, are the guy who called himself. David Duke without the baggage. Yeah. Scalise. Scalise so you, your, your range is now extreme to a little less extreme, and there's very little left of the kind of people who probably compelled you to become a Republican. I mean, like, this is what happens when you allow extremism to hijack and take over a political party. The Republican Party in its current rendition is an ungovernable party. It cannot govern. I remember in 2014 when Brad beat Eric Cantor. I was an opposition researcher tasked with all the Apple research for all Republican candidates running in the state of Virginia. Yeah. Cantor was rarely ever in his district. And when Brad won, I remember the conversations at the time strategic were, well, if we allow some of the Tea Party individuals to win and we support mm-hmm. them and we back them, we can control them, we uh, can reel them in, <laughs> but temporarily it will give us a majority. And yeah. it did. It was the greatest majority in 90 years. Yeah. The party was incredibly successful. Fast forward after that, yeah. you get to Trump. And, and, and that, to me, was sort of the catalyst where I think the Republican Party really had to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Do we completely oppose him with everything we can to try to save the party? Right. Or do we allow this guy to become the nominee and mm-hmm. ultimately win? Yeah. Or they chose for Trump to become the president. Yeah. And at this point, Joy, I don't see how it's even possible for the Republican Party to reverse this. Yeah. Kurt, to your point of you don't negotiate with terrorists, it's too late for that, Joy. The terrorists right. have won. They've started correct. beheading people. That's they That's have correct. now regained control yeah. of the Republican Party. And to the point that you made and asked about those moderates, the idea of moderation in the Republican Party is, is a non-existent term. Right. The idea of bipartisanship is a non-existent term. Yeah. Many folks that I knew, many folks you knew who were moderate-leaning Republicans have either become Democrats like Kurt or independents like myself. Yeah. And so I think one has to ask the question, Joy, at that point, if you are a conservative in this country, mm-hmm. what is your obligation when the current iteration of your party yeah. stands for everything that is, for the most part, anti-democracy? Yeah. And, and the, that's a and, tough question. And the most conservative, one of the most conservative members of, of Congress who's now out, Charlie Sykes, is named mm-hmm. Liz Cheney. The Cheneys are out. Okay. I mean, that's how far. And, you know, and to take this back a little bit further, you know, there was a time when the John Birch Society tried this game and the party at the time said, absolutely not. You can't come in. But they've done the opposite strategy and seem to be shocked that the same people who hated Kevin McCarthy when he tried to be speaker before still hate him and don't want to let him in. Let me go through with you, Charlie Sykes, some of the list of what McCarthy has been willing to give in. He's been willing to give in, lower the threshold for a vote of no confidence in the speaker to five members, meaning five people can throw him out. 
imposing limits on nonpartisan office of congressional ethics, meaning basically saying no ethics investigations against insurrectionists who are in that same caucus of 20, creating a, a new select committee to investigate the weaponization of the DOJ and the FBI, eliminating the creation of the House staff labor unions, messing the, up their staff, ending the practice of proxy voting, and et cetera, and restoring something called the Holman Rule, letting, men, letting people propose amendments. I doubt the base cares about that. But it, it doesn't seem like any of that will make those 20 move because they yeah. know that they already own him. Well, that's right. I mean, he tried to shrink his way into power, you know, and amazingly, uh, that weakness did not actually impress his his colleagues. Look, uh, there's no question about it that uh, the Republican Party is now held hostage by the extremists. But also, it's important to understand what's on display here. It's, it's, it's extremism, but it's also nihilism. They love the theater of what happened today. They don't care about the institution. They don't care about governing at all. Um, they think their job is to blow things up, tear things down, uh, you know, and, and, to, and to start fires. And this is what we're having. So Kevin McCarthy becomes the, I mean, this, it's almost symbolism overload today because it all, you know, that th you reap what you sow. This has been coming for so long. And Kevin McCarthy's whole career has really made him sort of an avatar of the GOP cowardice, surrender, and humiliation. Uh, and and, and, and it, as Republicans are looking around, um, they have so many reasons to think this is not going well for us right now, is it? And Kevin McCarthy going through that hat trick of humiliation today, <laughs> and it's going to get worse tomorrow. And by the way, the strategy that they have apparently based uh -oh. on Okay, well, let's fit, let, let's let Charles. Right now. Oh, there we go. There I'm we go. Okay. It, it, Start again. Go again. Go again. Because yeah. you froze. Well, their strategy is to go. It, their strategy is to go to the real bosses of the party, which is of course the entertainment wing of the party, <laughs> to go to Tucker and Sean Hannity and Ben Shapiro, and count on them to beat up these twenty uh, the these twenty dissenters, which tells you really where the center of power and the priorities of this party are right now. And also, uh, historians are going to have a hard time explaining the scene that you saw today where the party that lost control is jubilant, celebrating, <laughs> and the party that is taking control that would normally have this moment of triumph and jubilation and expectation has decided instead to pull the pin on the gr grenade and toss it among themselves. What an extraordinary moment of political failure by a political party. It, it, the smooth transition on the Democratic side, it was it was remarkable. And it's left Hakeem Jeffries with more votes for speaker than Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> right. And, and let's just talk bench for just a second. I, I want to get all of you guys in on this conversation, because the other issue is who have they got to replace him with? Right. Marjorie Taylor Greene is moaning. Can we just play this real quick? I don't know how much time we have. Let's play Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is how you go establishment. Watch her do it. Watch her work. I haven't asked for one thing for my for myself, and I'm the only Republican that has zero committees. I find out that it's my uh, Freedom Caucus colleagues and my supposed friends that went and did that, and they asked nothing for me. Nothing. That's what I found out in there. I am furious. The operative word is me. Me. There's no, Damn. you know, I'm furious that, you know, we're not going to be able to do X policy wise. Mm -hmm. We're not going to be able to change mm -hmm. Y. It's me. I didn't get anything. I was negotiating. You want to talk about the swamp. Yeah. It, it doesn't get more back room than saying in the back room, I want something for me. So that just shows where she lands. But just for, for, for the moment, let's just go through very quickly. And I'll give each of you guys a minute. Mm -hmm. 
Who have they got to as backup? <laughs> Steve Scalise. Jim Jordan, who got the second most votes mm-hmm. in the Republican conference for speaker today, even though he has said he doesn't want to have 200. There's no 218 uh, votes for that guy. Nope. And the minute he became speaker, the next day, the George Clooney executive produced documentary about what he did when he was assistant coach in Ohio and all of yeah. those young men were assaulted is coming out. Become center so he, he doesn't want to be speaker for good reason. And that's why I think Scalise is probably the most likely candidate. David Duke can, without the baggage. Because Scalise now <laughs> understand, too, the biggest issue with McCarthy is that this is a guy who stands for nothing. He's all things to all people all the time. With Scalise, the Republican conference believes is ideologically consistent. Mm-hmm. They know who he is. There is a consistency in the leadership there. He has already been elected to leadership multiple times. They feel more comfortable with him. The right. biggest issue McCarthy is trust. He has to yeah. go and raise money. Steve Scalise, if he's the if he's uh, the, the speaker, um, Sir Michael. Longtime political reporter claims that when she first met Scalise, when David Duke was a state representative, Scalise, who's from Louisiana as well, told her, I was like David Duke without the baggage. Uh, Roll call, the interview. Scalise claimed in 1999 that he embraced many of the same conservative views as David Duke, but is more viable. Scalise appeared at a white supremacist event led by a group founded by David Duke. Chip Roy, who gave a speech today, Mm -hmm. gave a lovely speech for McCarthy. That's the guy who endorsed lynchings in Texas. The bench is rotten. I mean, look, Joy, this this is a serious moment that's going on with the Republican Party right now. You have a party that has won the majority that cannot govern. There are people in this country right now who are struggling to pay their rent. There are families in this country right now who need child care, health care. There are dozens of individuals who who are now released from prison who need some type of help with reform and trade and education. You have a party that's not going to tackle any of this. You have a political party that what we saw with Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's not about the American people. It's about themselves. It's an egoist party that only cares about its own advantages versus how to move the needle forward for the average person. And and Charlie Sykes, last word to you on on Elise Stefanik, who's the last unnamed member of this cabal, somebody who wanted to be in the Buttigieg administration. She ain't getting it either. (laughs) No, the the problem is it doesn't matter who's on the bench because whoever becomes speaker will be, um, you know, immediately powerless and, and weak. So you're going from a powerful speaker to the, one of the puniest speakers um, that we have ever had. It does not matter who ends up with this job because we've already seen this is a party that is um, uh, incapable and uninterested in governing. No one with a brain wants that job. <laughs> and then Kevin, I guess, is the one who wants it. So I don't know what that means. Uh, Sir Michael Singleton, Kirk Martell, and Charlie Sykes. Huh? Uh, if you think the start of the 118th Congress was exciting, wait to hear about what happened to the 74th Congress. NBC News presidential historian Michael Beschloss joins us next. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 
As the House of Representatives remains speakerless for now, it is important to note just how historic what we saw today into tonight really is. I mean, rarely does it ever take more than one round of voting to elect a speaker. In fact, in the past century and a half, only twice has the vote for speaker required multiple ballots. The last time it happened was exactly 100 years ago, in 1923, when Congressman Frederick Gillette was elected on the ninth ballot. And that took a couple of days. Before that, there was the longest and most contentious speaker vote in U.S. history, which happened in 1856 during the 34th Congress. It took nearly two months for the House to choose its leader. As anti-slavery congressman Nathaniel Banks ran against multiple candidates who wanted to expand slavery. Banks finally won after 133 rounds of voting. There was also the bizarre situation in 1931, when after Republicans won a two-seat House majority in the 1930 midterms, a year after the stock market crash that sparked the Great Depression, 14 members, 14 members elect died. They died between Election Day and the start of the 72nd Congress, including the sitting speaker, Nicholas Longworth III, you know, the guy that the House building is named after, giving Democrats control of the House and the speakership to John Nance Garner. You can't make it up. It's history. Joining me now is NBC News presidential historian Michael Betchloff. Now, you know, I I love a wormhole, um, uh, Michael, and that was my favorite wormhole today. Um, is just it has happened before. But I, I, what I would love for you to, to talk about is when those when these narrow, narrow, narrow majorities happen and there's a contentious vote for speaker, what tends to happen to the party that wins? <laughs> well, in the old days, you know, they could go on just as you were saying, Joy, like 1855, 1856, it went over New Year's and they could go on for two months and they could have 133 ballots because There wasn't modern press coverage. And I would guess that out in Illinois, where I grew up, people were not, you know, mesmerized by every minute (laughs) of what was going on in the House of Representatives, the way that at least some people are nowadays. And the same thing with 1923. And the other thing is, it was before the Cold War. It was before the Mm. times that we're living in. You know, the Congress was not seen as hugely important to every single minute of what's going on in our economy and and national security. So Americans were willing to put up with these long fights. But in recent years, until 1994, you know, the kind of person who would be the leader of the House, more or less, would be someone like Gerald Ford or someone like Bob Michael, two Republican leaders, both of whom I knew, you know, two two of the nicest guys on earth. And they were elected because... They could get along with their colleagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gerald Ford played golf with Tip O'Neill. They were nice people. They raised money. Uh, and so everything was sort of a, you know, an, a world that we do not know now. Then you know, comes the- Newt Gingrich, 1990. Yes, 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 yes. Please say more, say more. Well, Gingrich came in and said, you know, we Republicans have been out of power for 40 years. We've been letting the Democrats eat our breakfast and lunch. And we can change that by being much more assertive, saying that if you elect us, we'll have a contract with America, maybe 10 things like a balanced budget, welfare reform that we will insist upon. And the other thing is the old days of Democrats and Republicans getting along. That is no more. There's going to be constant contact, uh, combat. And so Gingrich comes in 1994, got 54 seats. Compare that to that election in November, 54 Mm -hmm. seats 
huge sea change. Bill Clinton, who was president, was asked at a press conference, are you relevant in light of this big congressional victory like but uh, by Republicans and you know Clinton was almost you know sputtering like a guppy <laughs> you know the thing is I think there are two things that that, that was one thing the, the fact that Gingrich fundamentally changed the way Republicans operate particularly in the house it's now bled over a little bit into the Senate but the yes. other piece of it that takes me back to the 19, to the 1856 election is that in this case that was before the Civil War we right. now have had an attack on our capital, domestic terrorism, and people in Congress who participated in or at least supported it. Some of them are now either controlling who will be speaker completely or or in line to be speaker. The idea that Jim totally. Jordan, who is mentioned in the January 6th hearings, the idea that insurrectionists are now the people who will decide who the speaker is seems to me to be mind blowing from an historical standpoint. It is mind blowing. And I don't know how you felt, Joy, but when I heard the news today that the incoming Republican majority in the House is insisting on taking out the magnetometers and reducing security around the House chamber, maybe there's a benign explanation of that, but that makes me very nervous, not even two years after January 6th. And the other thing is that before, you know, 1994, both parties had people of almost all ideologies. There was such mm -hmm. thing as just I hope everyone in our audience is sitting down. There was such thing as a liberal Republican yes. from New England in 1994. Needless yeah. to say, not too many now. So the result was that there were differences between the two parties, but they were relatively well managed. Now what we've been seeing today and what a day we've been through is a weak uh, minority leader, uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy, who is running from person to person, making all sorts of secret deals, God knows what, you know, maybe chop aid to Ukraine in, in half, <laughs> you know, maybe do this investigation of this department. Uh, what secret deals he's made, no one knows. But the point is that for two years, he's had the opportunity to bribe his colleagues and also threaten his colleagues. And despite that kind of power, he wasn't able to get a majority on the first ballot, just yeah. as you have said, for the first time since 1923, this is going nowhere. Since before there was television, right. <laughs> essentially, right? I mean, it's, and it's I don't really think it was covered on radio much. Exactly. Stunning stuff. I'll always love to talk with you, Michael Beschloss. Same thank here. you very Be much. Well. Thank you, Joy. You too. Happy New Year. Okay, up next, the study in contrast what the 118th Congress looks like on the other side of the aisle after this. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I rise today at the direction of the House Democratic Caucus to place into nomination for election to the position of Speaker of the House of Representatives, the pride of Brooklyn, Hakeem Jeffries of New York. Today, Madam Clerk, House Democrats are united. United by a speaker who will put people over politics. In contrast to the embarrassing chaos on the Republican side of the aisle, Democrats displayed a united front today, nominating Hakeem Jeffries as speaker. In his nominating speech, Congressman Aguilar made a pointed note that Jeffries wasn't beholden to extremists, unlike the Republican Party, held hostage by the right since the Tea Party during the Obama years, then morphing into the MAGA crowd and now in its current incarnation as the party of insurrectionists. Now, it's not that the Democratic Party hasn't had its own pushback from the left. In 2018, the squad changed politics in Washington and forced the Democrats to actually hear its base. And with this new Congress, the progressive wing's numbers are growing. I'm joined now by one of the OG members of the squad, Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who I will note was wearing the flyest outfit in the gallery today. I caught you on uh, on the feed and was like, hold on a second, that necklace, fabulous. Um, so I do have to ask you what the vibe was like on the Democratic side. I'm so curious because... It, it was this wonderful sort of, you know, picture of multiculturalism, multiracialism. You know, you have a leadership team that's got a woman, a, 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 a black, two black men, a Latino. What was the vibe like on the Democratic side? Joyful um, and just really uh, clear on the historic nature of the day. And, and I would also say just um, we're also not only happy, um, but also proud that we have a Democratic leadership team that is reflective and representative uh, of the, the people who call this country home. You know what? What I was just speaking with Michael Beschloss, our, our, our we, we we call him our in-house historian here, and you know we were talking about these previous Congresses where you had all these narrow majorities, and the fact that afterwards they could work together. But in those Congresses, it was all white guys. It was all older white guys. They were all demographically identical, and so they could find commonalities no matter what their party. In, in this situation that is coming up in the 118th Congress. Not only is the Democratic Party completely different in terms of being diverse and the Republican Party different in terms of being extreme, there are still things that need to get done. There were still things that that you all wanted to do, the progressive wing wanted to do. I'm going to put a few of them up. They still need to get done. Police reform, immigration rights, voting rights, child tax credit, paid family leave, increased minimum wage, universal pre-K, social security expansion. Even under the great Nancy Pelosi, who is going to go down as one of the greatest speakers in history, it could, those things could not get done. You now have Hakeem Jeffries is a different type of guy, different type of person, but also dealing with a different type of crazy on the other side. What do you anticipate this looking like in the 118th Congress? Well, Joy, um, the thing is, uh, what the display that we saw today by the Republicans is clear that not only do they have contempt for the American people, and they are uh, ill-prepared uh, to govern, and McCarthy is unfit to be speaker. They have proven that they are the party that is anti-worker, anti-immigrant, anti-woman, anti-democracy, and in my opinion, anti-American. While on the other side, the Democrats, we have proven time and time again, as we have stood in the gap, 
to alleviate hardship, to mitigate harm, to advance progress uh, during these very consequential times, that what we do is for the people. And that is exactly why we have a democratic leadership that is representative of the people, um, because uh, we, we're, we're very clear about who we work for. And we have compassion for the American people, not content. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. As a proud progressive, we don't just mobilize and engage for an election cycle. Uh, we're doing the work of movement building year round. And that is essential uh, to advancing progress and advancing progressive politics, which by, uh, policies, which, by the way, are very popular um, policies like paid leave and uh, canceling student debt, uh, you know, to name a few. Um, so it requires movement building. And we want to make sure that we are well poised uh, to take that gavel back in two years and for the House to be in the majority as we gear up for uh, 2024. So we have two two years uh, to make the affirmative case for Democrats. And uh, and I'll bet on us every time. And I, I think the other side is going to try to help you because they seem to be trying to be as sort of wild as possible and unelectable as possible. But I do have to ask you this. You know, we've talked a lot uh, with you on the show just about the experience of the insurrection and how terrifying it was for you, for your family, for your staff. The fact that the people who are making the decision of who's going to be speaker, holding Kevin McCarthy hostage, and in some cases being nominated for speaker, people like Jim Jordan, I just wonder how that lands with you that insurrectionists are the opposition on the other side to the whatever it is you call Kevin McCarthy and that they seem to be winning. Well, it doesn't land well, um, but it doesn't uh, have me uh, uh, living in fear uh, for myself. It has me living in fear uh, for the state of our democracy and for the American people. Uh, what January 6th proved to us when a white supremacist mob seized the Capitol uh, to interrupt the peaceful transition of power uh, is that uh, white supremacy is a threat to everyone who calls this country home and to our democracy. Uh, and in fact, uh, we see across the aisle uh, with uh, the insurrectionists uh, that are still uh, serving here in Congress. Um, you know, it again, it is anti-democratic. Uh, it is a threat to everyone. And uh, they do not care about democracy or the American people. And so the Democrats have two years to make the affirmative case uh, that we do care about uh, democracy, that we do care about the people. And so we'll continue to uh, to fight the good fight. Uh, I'm very proud to be serving in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, uh, having uh, just uh, elected historic uh, governors, lieutenant governors, attorney generals, all women. Um, and also to be serving with a historic mayor. So uh, I'm going to be exhaustive in using and leveraging every tool available to me, including um, my state house and my city hall, uh, to make sure that I'm advocating on behalf of the people. And then when it comes to uh, Washington, let us not lose sight that we do still have the White House. Uh, and I've worked very closely with the Biden-Harris administration in partnership on things like repealing Title 42, uh, canceling student debt, um, a moratorium on the federal death penalty. And so that work will continue uh, that we, uh, you know, push for an executive action agenda. Well, the two parties could not be more different in the Senate, but, all, but especially right. in the House. It just couldn't <laughs> be more different. It's amazing. Uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, I mean, wow. <laughs> Thank they you so much. They don't have any necklaces like that, Joy. They sure don't. And, uh, they, and you know what? If they had them, they'd have wore them wrong because they just would wore them wrong <laughs> just right. to do it wrong. Um, thank you very much, Congresswoman. Happy New Year. Thank you, Joy. 
Thank you. And still ahead, George Santos dodges tough questions like, what's your real name <laughs> on his first day in Congress? But first, a horrifying on-field injury, this is serious, raises new questions about America's obsession with the violent spectacle of professional football. We'll be right back. We're following the latest on the terrifying moment that unfolded during last night's Monday night football game. 24-year-old Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin remains in critical condition after spending the night in intensive care. Hamlin collapsed on the field after attempting a tackle early in the game against the Cincinnati Bengals. The Bills say he suffered a cardiac arrest. He was rushed to the hospital after being given CPR on the field for 10 minutes. The game was eventually postponed, and the NFL hasn't made a decision on when it will resume. It's yet another tragic reminder of the inherent violence of the sport and the humanity of the young men who put their health and safety on the line for the NFL's modern-day gladiator spectacle. Fans have poured millions of dollars into a charity toy drive that Hamlin started in college for kids in his Pennsylvania hometown. In a statement, Hamlin's family expressed sincere gratitude for the love and support shown to DeMar during this challenging time. Your generosity and compassion meet the world to us, they said. Joining me now is vascular cardiologist Dr. Bernard Ashby and William Roden, writer-at-large for ESPN's Andscape, an author of $40 Million Slaves, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Black Athlete. Thank you both for being here, Dr. Ashby. I do want to start with you and have walk us through what happened. How does performing a tackle in football, which looked like a clean tackle, um, result in a heart attack? little joy. I wish we were seeing each other again on better circumstances, but it's nice to see nonetheless. So this is is my little presentation here. So I want folks to really understand what happened or what appears to have happened based on uh, the video and the limited information that that has been released so far. So the heart has its own electrical conduction system, has its own SA node, which is the heart's internal pacemaker. Now, the heart is basically an electrical mechanical organ, meaning generates electricity, contracts the muscle, and that's how you get the blood out. Now, certain things can cause it to have an arrhythmia. And the most common cause of sudden cardiac death is something called ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia, which are both lethal arrhythmias. Now, with what happened to uh, uh, Mr. Hamlin on the field, it appeared that it actually looked like he got hit in the chest and with, with that particular circumstance, that can cause something called uh, uh, sorry, uh, commotio, commotio cordis, sorry, a little tongue-tied. But um, essentially, it's, it's really a freak accident where the blunt force trauma happens at a certain part of the cardiac cycle and causes it to go into something called ventricular fibrillation. Now, ventricular fibrillation is a form of cardiac arrest, meaning that the heart is unable to pump blood out to the body. And we, we're, we're looking at these arteries here, which are going to the brain. And so if, the, if there's not enough blood going to the brain, in particular, you can end up with anoxic brain injury. And if it's too prolonged, you're just going to die and, and you're going to have permanent cardiac arrest. And so that's why it's so important that he received CPR and got defibrillated very early on in the process. Is it, it, would you have to have had a heart problem before for this to happen or could it happen to a normal heart? It can happen to a normal heart. Wow. Like I said, it's kind of a freak accident. There's no way you yeah. can screen for this. 
That is scary. And let me bring you in here, Bill Roden, because, you know, I think one of the things that people have been thinking about a lot uh, since, you know, Tua's injury on the Miami Dolphins and others is, is the level of concern that the NFL in general has for the bodies of these players. It's a violent sport. It's a brutal sport in a lot of ways. Um, what do you make of the fact that it took a long time um, for that game to be called or for that game to be stopped? Um, what do you make of all of this? Well, I, I, I make it, and, and, and I thought the, the doctor's explanation was great. It's one of the best I've seen so far. Um, but uh, I think that um, there probably was, I, I would bet you dollars to donuts, that, because remember, all this is unprecedented. Nothing, so everybody's kind of freaking out. And I do think the default probably at some point was, and this is a whole football thing, it's kind of, all right, let's kind of get it together. You know, let's kind of get it together, and let's uh, we'll give you guys a little time. But let's kind of get it. Let's let's kind of get it rolling. And <laughs> I do think that somebody, and I probably it's probably Troy Vincent. It's probably Troy Vincent, the executive vice president uh, for operations. He's a compassionate guy. I think he probably stepped in and said, "Listen, there's no way that we're going to send these guys back out there to play." You know, so I, I think it just took a minute for everybody to get their, their acts together. And I, I thought it was great that the two coaches came together. They read the room. They saw the players. If you look at all the pictures, the players were totally freaked out. You know, the yeah. total players were totally freaked out. And so mm-hmm. I think that uh, the, the great decision was made and said there's no way that we could send these, these guys out here to play a game. Uh, but I do think it, originally the instinct from from some was to how do we kind of yeah. get this injured rolling, you know? Do, do um, you, do, do you, are you concerned that, I mean, I know that after a lot of these accidents, et cetera, happen, you know, parents start pulling their kids out of peewee football because they, they start feeling like maybe this is too dangerous between the head injuries and the CTE and these freak accidents. You know, I don't know. What, what do you make of it? I mean, because it does uh, feel I, like, yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, well, no, I hear where you're going, but there's always going to be a segment of people who will not be able to make this kind of money doing right. anything other than leasing out their bodies to these 32 NFL teams. And that's what we're talking about. So mm-hmm. I think the attitude among some is that, cool, I hope a lot of people don't play because that's, that's more opportunity for us. Yeah. So I think that given the structure of our, our, our society, uh, there are going to be a lot of people, many of them African-American boys. Uh, who are going to still throw their hat in the ring to play this very, uh, this very violent game. Yeah. I'm just wondering, is there any piece of equipment? Because I know it kind of where you're going with reform. Is there any piece of equipment that could have stopped this, um, you know, could have stopped this blow to the, this direct blow to the heart, or as you said, just. And as you answer that question, Dr. Ashby, I do want you to also address these people who started to use what happened to him for anti-vaxxism purposes. So if you could address very quickly, is there a piece of equipment that could prevent this and address these anti-vaxxers that are using this tragedy to promote their ideology? Wow. So so first of all, uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, Again, this is a freak occurrence. It occurred very infrequently. So, it happens in car accidents when you get hit by a baseball, mm. uh, you know, football. So it's 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 something that occurs so infrequently that it's it's really uh, you know uh, limited utility in trying to prevent it. To be honest, sure. but the uh, the other 
question with the anti-vax information, misinformation that's out there. It is, it is really ridiculous. I mean, I don't know if you saw saw the Tory Lanez case, but this has basically become the rock nation of, uh, you know, uh, of, you know, vaccines and cardiology. And it's uh, pretty disappointing that uh, instead of, you know, lifting up this man and trying to inform the public that we're jumping to all kinds of weird, wacky theories. Amen to that. Amen to that. Dr. Bernard Ashby, that really was one of the best explanations that I've seen. Thank you for doing that. Bill Roden, uh, my friend, I really appreciate you both. Friends both. Uh, Happy New Year to you both. And up next, Slippery George, Slippery George Santos slides into the hallowed halls of Congress, or does he? Da-da-da. More next. Only one Republican who had a crummier day than Kevin McCarthy, and that is embattled member-elect George Santos of Long Island, New York, who got a brutal welcome from the Washington press corps. Santos caught a glimpse of them outside his office and immediately turned on his heels. When those reporters caught up with him, the man who had no loss of words when it came to his resume seized up like a clam from Oyster Bay. Sir, do you plan to resign? When was the last time you spoke with GOP leadership? What is your legal name? While the media was all over the Catch Me If You Can, Santos, who is currently under local, state, federal, and international investigation, his future colleagues wanted nothing to do with him. Well, except for Kevin, who just wanted his vote for speaker. The 34-year-old fabulous was relegated to the back bench with the kids. And while he may not get the Plum Committee assignments he was hoping for at this point, he might as well just start telling people he's the speaker of the house. Because, you know, Kevin sure ain't closing. And that is the readout tonight. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance. While kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. 